listening to By the Well, a lectionary-based podcast for preachers recorded on the land of the Wurundjeri people. Greetings, everyone. It's Fran Barber here, and I'm joined again by Professor Glenn O'Brien. Thank you again for joining us on By the Well, Glenn. Thanks, Fran. Great to be back. Um, for those of you who didn't listen a couple of weeks ago, Glenn is um, research coordinator at Eva Burroughs College, Uniting Church Minister, and a historian of Methodism. And we're going to talk today about the readings for Advent 4, which are in particular Isaiah 7, verses 10 to 16, and Matthew 1, verses 18 to 25. So Isaiah gives Ahaz the sign of Emmanuel. We have a scared king here. Uh, historical context is about 8th century, eight, century um, and invasion is threatened for Israel and for Judah. And so there's quite a bit of political strife going on. And um, Ahaz is being required to place his faith in God, as all leaders are called to do in the scriptures, um, but he's scared and he really doesn't and he does put some false piety down there to cover his lack of faith. Um, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And Isaiah gets very fractious with him um, about him wearying God also. I think this passage from my point of view is quite powerful Uh because of the ambiguity and the paradox that it holds together around the wonder and joy of Emmanuel, God coming, God with us, Um, the wonder and the joy alongside the beware, look out. How do you see um, this passage as a preaching opportunity this week, Glenn? Yeah, it's a fascinating passage because it obviously has deep significance in the history of Israel and a particular political context in the 8th century BC, BCE. Uh, and yet uh, the New Testament writers give it a Christological spin, give it a Christian reading. And so it is Hebrew scripture and at the same time it becomes Christian scripture in the way that it's handled. And the link, I think, between the two is this idea of a child who mm. functions as a sign. Um, a has, as you say, there's a sort of a bit of a false piety. I'm not going to ask God for a sign. Isaiah gets fed up and says, okay, well, the Lord's going to give you one. Mm. And there's going to be a young woman with child. She will bear a son and she'll name him Emmanuel, God with us. And, of course, that's language very familiar to us in Advent and subsequently in Christmas uh, where we think of Jesus coming uh, as Emmanuel, as God with us. The Hebrew doesn't say a virgin will be with child, mm. but a young woman will be with child. And then the New Testament writers um, refer to Mary as a virgin with child. And we'll say more about that as we as we go on. But for now, it's just worth uh, noting, I think, this link where a little child becomes the sign of God's delivering power. And there's something very counterintuitive about that. In in Ahaz's context, Ahaz was the king of Judah during the time of a divided kingdom. Uh, Judah and Israel are divided, but they're equally threatened by Assyria, an aggressive military power, mm. a stronger military power. So there's a sense that the whole nation is is under threat. 
and when you would perhaps hope for greater military strength, uh, bigger weapons, bigger toys, bigger guns, mm. instead the sign that is given is a child, a, t- a small child who you know doesn't even know how to refuse evil and good uh, and choose the good, eating curds and honey, mm. um, a weaned child as it were. And similarly, when God um, begins to you know deliver the world, it's not through the might of armies, but through an infant child in a in a cradle in a manger. And I have the echo in my mind of the reference to the little child and the animals lying together from Advent two. Ah, yes. In my mind, mm. um, the peaceable kingdom. The peaceable kingdom. So it is about the the very um, nuanced. Our care with which these passages need to be taken, that this is not to be read by Christians as prediction in a raw sort of crude sense, mm. but it's about highlighting continuity and the, how the experience of Jesus was interpreted using the tools and the words and the images and the promises and the hopes as they were articulated in the Hebrew Scriptures. Um Using those tools to to talk about what what the experience of Christ was like. Yeah, and I think some Christians are a bit uncomfortable with this because they've been tutored by, you know, historical grammatical method of reading mm. the Bible to always mm. ask, mm. what did the text mean to the original authors and to the original hearers? And then they look at Isaiah and they say, well, what did Isaiah mean? It can't mean anything else. It can't mean anything mm. different. But obviously it does mean something different in in Matthew, and Matthew makes a particular theological use of it. So there's a creativity there, and um, and, and I think this is often uh, overlooked, and I wouldn't necessarily uh, suggest that we need to you know entirely give up concern for historical and grammatical context and issues and form criticism and so on. But there's something to be taken from the old allegorical method that was so yeah. popular in the medieval period in terms of creativity what what insights what um what, what creative new ideas are opened up if we read these texts in a particular kind of way in light of the revelation of god given in jesus christ mm. that's the sort of thing the new testament writers were doing yeah <laughs> creatively using the text the, he- the text of the hebrew scriptures to spin it into a new trajectory because i mean after all this is the living god who comes to us in the living word yes and um something in a new way each time. Uh, and so we, I mean, that's what, the, that's what the living of the gospel and the preaching of the gospel is in every new culture, isn't it? It's that's making right. It's making use of these wisdoms and these um, images um, and of this tradition. Otherwise it becomes for a, new d- ears. a dead letter. A dead letter, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and legalism. Is, is there anything um, more about what, Isaiah says here that we would underline as preachers. I mean, there's the house of David emphasised again. Yeah, no. Not, no more. I, I don't really see anything that significant, so I think... Yeah, well, we might move on then to the Matthew text, which is the birth of Matthew, and that's Matthew 1, uh, verses 18 to 25. So Matthew's story of Jesus' birth is very much from the perspective of Joseph 
quite unique in that way. Is that something that compels you as a preacher? Yeah, I think we don't know much about Joseph, do we? He disappears from the story uh, fairly early. You know, he's not there in the later... Uh, when Jesus is crucified, for example, Mary is there at the cross, but Joseph is nowhere to be seen. So the assumption is normally that Mary became a widow. At some point, Joseph passed away. We don't really know. Mm. There are traditions, but we don't really know for sure. Um, but where Luke is very much focused on Mary and her role in the story, um, I think Matthew gives us a little bit more about Joseph. We get some insights into the situation he found himself in. The human dilemma side yes. of it. The That's sort right. of, um, well, again, the ambiguity, but the, the the lack of certainty, the confusion, perhaps. Yeah, he needs reassurance. Um, and and his posture, actually, of honour and respect in a situation where, um, if in fact Mary had um, committed adultery, yeah. she would be stoned. Right. And yep. he, even though might be a man wronged in that sense, wants to protect her. Yes, uh, uh, in, in in this period, an engagement was as binding as a marriage. Yeah. So, so uh, there would have to be a divorce proceeding um, in a situation like this, and and Joseph wants to protect her from that shame. So that shows something about his character. He doesn't want mm. to just shame her, but he wants to protect her from that and put her away quietly. <laughs> Which <laughs> as, is. In itself. An interesting phrase. Yes. <laughs> uh, Brendan Byrne makes some really interesting comments in his commentary about uh, the practice of the time where, as we know, girls were betrothed very, very young and there tended to be a time when she didn't, that the couple didn't live together um, until greater maturity um, and hence we have the line, um, but before they lived together, mm. so that... Um, emphasising that they hadn't had sexual relations and, and had been too young uh, to, to live together. Which takes us to, um, I suppose, what we're skirting around, aren't we, is that what what many see as sort of the key part of this passage to have problems with uh, the so-called virgin birth in verse 23 uh, and how, as a preacher, got to, you tread this line of not wanting to um, take your whole sermon up in t- hows and how nots and you mm. know boring logistics, <laughs> uh, but taking seriously people's question about what on earth, how on earth this could be possible, or actually, I mean, the the goal of the preacher is it not to to guide people to ask the right question of the text. <laughs> Yeah, I think if you strip away the miraculous elements of the story, you you, you really strip away its narrative power mm. completely. Um, you know, people will say, well, how could a virgin give birth to a child? Or they will point to other virgin birth stories in other religions where divine children are born to virgins. And they'll say, well, this is just another example of mm. a common theme found in religions all around the world and we shouldn't take it literally and so mm. forth. And look, there is a place for you know, having those intellectual doubts about the virgin birth. But what value is there in airing all that in the pulpit? It seems mm. to me that one should let the story speak for itself and there's little to be gained by rationalising it all away. I mean, we recite in the creed, I believe in Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin mm. Mary. Are we going to recite the creed and then in the sermon say, well, you know, she couldn't really have been a virgin. I mean, yeah, yeah. I think there's a certain intellectual 
arrogance to that. And it's better to take the stance of humility, just retell the story with the whole church. It's only a certain demographic of maybe older liberal boomers who will be concerned about this. Most people will just go with the story. Um, It actually begins in a very matter-of-fact way. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. It's it's an interesting matter-of-fact way of introducing the whole story. And then what takes place is just narrated in a matter-of-fact kind of way. And yes, there is a mystery here. But to try to explain the mystery, I think, uh, defeats the purpose of the story, which has its own wonder and its own uh, power. Oh, certainly would agree. And, um, you know, a key line I use about this passage that is that it's theological, not gynecological, mm. what the mm. point of it is here. But I do think Ben Myers in his um, sermons and now book on the Apostles' Creed deals quite beautifully with that um, pull to explain without explaining. So he talks about the... The, the issue with, with our late modern minds is we take the virgin birth out of context entirely and he likens it to discovering a string on the floor, a guitar string on the floor. You've never seen a guitar before, no idea what it is. Oh, it's a bit too, you know, flimsy to walk the dog with or floss your teeth with, or <laughs> too big to floss your teeth with. Um, but that actually this birth is part of a whole... Old and New Testament, Hebrew Scripture, New Testament, where miraculous births are the way that God mm. deals with us. Mm. So, you know, you've got Abraham and Sarah, you've got Moses. Okay, his birth perhaps wasn't miraculous, but certainly his survival was. Mm. Um, we get to the time of judges and you've got Samson, you get to the time of prophets and you've got Samuel, Hannah, who was just barren for so long and had um, Samuel. Um, you've got Isaiah's promise and so on. And this is the way that God deals with the humanly impossible and brings in the new is with impossible births, so to speak. So for me, when I first heard Ben explain it in that way or talk about it, contextualise it theologically, very powerful, very powerful, so that the story has its own profound logic um, and its own profound truth. I think that's absolutely right. Um, if I could bring in the Wesley heritage here, there's, oh, a won- do, yeah. Yeah, there's a wonderful line in a Charles Wesley hymn, Let Earth and Heaven Combine, which is often sung at this time of year, uh, where he, he's, he refers to the incarnation or to Jesus as our God contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man. So that God should become a human being is such an astonishing thing it confounds the intellect. It's something that is incomprehensible. But it's in the wonder of that and the incomprehensibility of that that a space is opened for worship because we don't worship what we fully comprehend. We worship in the face of wonder. There's a residue of mystery left behind mm. by so much about the gospel that opens up towards worship. The hymn goes on to say, He laid his glory by, he wrapped him in our clay. He, God, wrapped him, Jesus, in our clay Unmarked by human eye, the latent Godhead lay. Infant of days, he here became and bore the mild Emmanuel's name. So that's, you know, that hymn uh, evokes the Isaiah passage and the Matthew passage together. Uh, it's an interesting example of how Charles Wesley wrote, uh, wove scripture 
into his hymns. It's not like he's got his Bible open and his concordance open. He's just writing, but he is so familiar with the text mm. of Scripture and with the Book of Common Prayer and, uh, and, and even with the apocryphal scriptures because they were included in the Anglican lectionary, that the hymns are just filled with these biblical allusions, um, not through a process of research, but mm. simply in a kind of poetic rush of ideas. Um, so I think this category of mystery and category of wonder, to rationalise and try to explain or explain away the virgin birth, birth or virgin conception, technically speaking, yeah. um, is to kind of rob it of all of its power. Yeah, yeah. I want to um, highlight just an, another verse here. She will bear a son and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And I'm highlighting that because of the conversation we had in the last episode we were together about this, this aspect of Advent where... Um, Peace, joy, hope and liberation and wonder and God's promise are what we anticipate and what we look towards and what we wait for. But the reason we look and wait and hope is because the right now is unsatisfactory, to put it mildly. Um, we, we live in a world where there is tremendous suffering and, again, as Fleming Rutledge would say, there is evil. And she, mm. she actually talks about, you know, we have a view now where the, there's, there's, well, it's about humanity only. God doesn't, isn't even an acting partner, but um, h- human will is really where everything plays out, whereas for the New Testament world it was actually three participants or three agents on the stage and it was humanity, God and the evil one. Mm. And... Um, she she talks very seriously about how we all i mean so very unfortunately many of us have been have been been at the hands of the of evil powers you know it's when uh, when evil is it's more than the sum total of those who are doing something wrong um and she also talks about it being much more than the absence of good that you know auschwitz is not just the absence of good you know um the institutional abuse of children is not just mm. the absence of good, that there is this principalities and power that Paul talks about that we can't save ourselves from mm. despite our wanting to stand at that gap. And, and many, you know, many of us in small ways might do that, stand and witness to something else, mm. that the very real reality of human existence and is this pain mm. Um Perhaps, yeah, and we locate it in sin, sin here, but it's highlighted in this passage by the reference to sin. Yeah. Now, I think that Rutledge is on to something very important there because we have this rather Pollyanna-ish approach to sin. We don't like to talk about it and to evil. I, I agree with her and with yourself that this is something that is active, that has its own power and that we are entangled in and often we don't even recognise it ourselves. It's more than just um, internal personal wrongfulness, although it's connected to that. It's a much larger political and organic kind of reality. And going back to the earliest Christian reflections upon Christ's coming into the world, the theme of destroying evil was a very prominent theme, destroying Mm. the powers of evil, the whole Christus Victor kind of theme of um, a power encounter, if you like, between Christ and the powers of evil and the way in which his his incarnation, life, death, resurrection, ascension, as a package, 
uh, delivers the world from the power of evil in a dramatic power encounter. And um, and she also says sort of when we talk a lot about Advent as a preparation season, that it, that's actually too human-centred, that, mm. you know, it's, it's actually God who can do this. We respond to it, but we can't bring it in ourselves. Um, and just if you'll indulge me for one moment longer, I think I mentioned last time we spoke that um, Fleming also talks about the medieval church having the four weeks of Advent, not peace, hope, love and joy, but um, death, judgment, heaven and hell, mm. and that actually the fourth week of Advent was an occasion to preach on hell. <laughs> and how interesting that that was the tradition in such that hell was in such close proximity to Jesus' birth in the in the church's tradition, um, and she talks about having, um, you know, what hymns would we sing in Advent if we're not going to do Christmas ones, you know? And she she felt that that the words that abounded in um, Advent hymns were gloom, captive, misery, decay, bondage, mm-hmm. torment. Now, folks, don't you don't need to go yeah. <laughs> too far with that, but. I think her point is very well made that um, we've perhaps in our modern approach glossed over that. Yeah, I, I think that's right. You know, we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. There's, yeah. there's a situation of crisis that is addressed in his coming into the world. And, of course, we often forget that after Christmas comes the massacre of the, the innocents. Mm. So no sooner have we had the beauty and the joy and the gentleness and the peace of O Silent Night than we have an evil king massacring all children under the age of two and we have women crying for their lost children. And so the power of evil once again raises its head and you know, we dare not kind of just take that as something nothing. You know, It is something to be considered and something that, um, you know, yes, God has addressed it, but it would be naive of us to think that, Evil is not something real, whether in ourselves or within the larger social and political. And so, Advent is about the birth, the coming of the of Christ, the birth, but also the coming ultimately in the fulfilment of all things, where such evil is done away with, and there is no more crying, and there is no more despair. And yeah, because the, 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 again, to tie the two texts together, and Matthew explicitly references. Emmanuel, and says the child will be named Emmanuel, God is with us. And then when the baby is born, they name him Jesus. They don't name him Emmanuel. Mm. So it's an interesting interpretive use of the Isaiah passage. But they name him Jesus, which means saviour. So the message seems to be that when God comes to be with us, Emmanuel, God comes to save us in the sense of deliver us. And so the name given to the child is Saviour, Jesus, the one who saves. And that is a fine moment to close our conversation on Advent for Glenn. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your insights with us on By the Well in the Advent season. Thank you, Fran. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for listening. By the Well is brought to you by Pilgrim Theological College and the Uniting Church in Australia. It's produced by Adrian Jackson. Thanks for listening.